Now, in the US, when you have dividends from Australian companies, generally speaking, the US would treat that dividend as what's called qualified. A qualified dividend in the US gets taxed in the same fashion as a long-term capital gain in the US, which means there's a top rate, a flat rate that gets imposed on that dividend. For a lot of people, that flat rate will be 15%. And that's the case until you get to much higher income levels. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to another US episode of Tax Talks, US number nine. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. How are Australian companies picked up in US individual tax returns, so-called 1040s? Do you just record the dividends as income if and when it is paid? Or is it a look-through approach and you recognize income based on attribution? And under what circumstances do Australian companies have a filing obligation in the US to file a US corporate tax return? These are just some of the questions Seth Hertz of Expect US Tax will discuss with you in this episode. And by the way, at about the six minute mark, there is important legal construction happening, very hardworking, very cute, but then the construction team moved to another building site. So you only hear them for a minute or two. We have our most common situation now, Heidi, where you have a US citizen living in Australia and holding 100% of the shares of an Australian company, typically, again, PTY Limited, then you have what in the US is called a controlled foreign corporation or CFC, which Australia has that similar concept in its legislation as well. And when you're dealing with a, a CFC, then you will have in, in the US individual tax return for that uh, U.S. citizen, you'll have the requirements to, in essence, report almost everything going on with that company in the U.S. return. And this is done through, to a certain extent, the 1040, but what it really is, is a form, a different form that gets filed with the 1040 as a supporting schedule. And that form is a 5471, 5471. And what you're looking and getting with that form would be almost all the information that you would expect to have come from the Australian corporate filing, the corporate tax return filing that is put forward. You've got the profit and loss information from that company for the tax year. You've got the balance sheet when showing all of the, the different assets that are being held. All of this information does need to be included in this form 5471, which does get it attached to the form 1040 for the year. So if we're looking at that particular question, that's the answer that you have. And it does make it more difficult in the sense that there's a lot, because there's so much information that has to be picked up, there's a lot that has to be uh, done in order to make sure that everything is done accurately for that individual on their individual income tax return. And you have to file this 5471, even if you just hold a very small percentage. So let's say even if you just hold 1% 
of the I, I assume that not i assume you only have to do the 50 uh, you only have to do it if it's a controlled for incorporation meaning if you hold more than 50 percent correct there are a variety of instances where a 5471 is required whenever there is a cfc meaning that a u.s person or persons plural owns more than 50 percent of the of the shares in the company, then there will be a 5471 that is required to be filed every year. As soon as you have two equal shareholders, you no longer have to do a 5471. So in that case, does the company get picked up at all? Or do you only report the dividends you might receive? Even in that circumstance, I'll, and I'll come back to this, you can have a situation depending on, let's say, that second person who's not a US person, depending on who that person is, you might still have a, C a CFC. And I'll come back to that. But let's assume for a second that it's not a CFC. Then you probably do not have, other than let's say a year where you have a significant purchase of the shares, more than 10%, or you have a disposal of shares, There's a variety of different times where you might have to file a 5471, but they are typically because of one-off events that are taking place, not necessarily, not necessarily every year. Okay, so let's assume it's not a CFC. Let's assume there is no significant event, so no purchase or sale of 10% of shares or other one-off events. In that case... How does the company get picked up in the 1040? Not at all, unless there are dividends. So are only the dividends picked up in a 1040 when you don't have a CFC and no significant event? That is correct. At that stage, you'd be looking, in essence, at an investment. And you might have an investment in Telstra, for example, or you might have your own company. But in that sense, you're, because you're not dealing with a CFC, you are then going to be taxed on what comes out from that company to you as a dividend at that particular time, which is instinctive and it's, it's what people expect. And at least it does also keep make sure that the timing of taxation from an Australian point of view and from a US point of view is consistent. And so now let's talk about this second person to see whether it really is a CFC or not. I assume if it's an associate, so for example, a spouse, then we might be back in CFC territory. Is that correct? That is correct. There are a number of types of relationships where you have a concept known as attribution, where the shares of that particular individual are attributed to the U.S. citizen because of the relationship that they have and not going to don't there's a list of people like that but spouses are definitely included on that list and you can see the reason why set up that situation and what they're looking at is saying well this is it smells like a you know the classic expression smells like a rose must be a rose well this you know smells like a cfc you know when you've got a married couple who have the joint ownership of the shares For all intents and purposes, the IRS says, well, that's really the the, the spouse that uh, the US spouse that owns both. And I can imagine the list of persons that would result in attribution of interest would be spouses, dependent children. Would it also include independent children, adult children who are independent? It can. I, I don't have the list in front of me at the moment, uh, Heidi, and it's one which it's worth 
making sure that you keep an eye on because some are obvious and some are not. But I can imagine if it is a true business partner who is independent of you, then it would not result in an attribution. That's correct. And that's that's the right way to think about it is if you look at it and say, well, this is a close family member. Sometimes siblings are not included, so that might that might uh, be an exception. But if it's a close family member, it's probably it's more likely to be attribution. But if you're talking about a completely separate independent relationship, like a friend or just an associate that you've formed a business with, that will not be his attribution and so you should be able to go forward and not have a CFC in that situation. Yes, and we have the same concept, you know, when we look at CFCs under Australian law, we also have those rules around attribution of interest, etc., to see whether it's a controlled company or not. So that concept is not unfamiliar. That means when you are under 50%, then You just have the dividends in your 1040 and you don't need to file a 5471. And as soon as you hit 50% plus 00.1, you are in 5471 territory, correct? There are a variety of reasons, even at below 50%, where on a one-time basis, you might need to file the 5471, typically the year of purchase of the shares, if you go above 10%, that will require 5471 for that year. But if we're looking at the really intrusive 5471, where everything has to be included as far as details, that's going to take place on an annual basis when you're dealing with a CFC. If you're dealing with a CFC, you've got that, as I said, on an annual basis. But if you're not dealing with a CFC and you don't have these one-time events, then you likely will not need to uh, have a 5471 filed uh, for that year. Be cautious about it because there are so many different instances that it is worth checking this question every year. That basically means for you as citizens living in Australia, whenever they start their own business with a company, they most likely will need to file a 5471 in the year they set up the company unless they have a genuine Yeah, even, I mean, as soon as they have 10% or more, they will have to file it 5471. It might not have to be done every year, but most likely in the year they set it up. And then also, of course, in the year they sell or close down. Correct. So you would be doing quite a few 5471 in your work, correct? It definitely comes up. I mean, I'd still say the vast majority of the clients I have are employees rather than business owners. I mean, that just, it kind of matches up with how society uh, has it as a whole, as far as percentages. Yeah, there are certainly plenty of business owners out there. There are also plenty of people who are investors. You know, the classic example of, you know, you have a U.S. citizen and they've got a mate and they want to go, you know, they want, that mate wants them to invest in a comp in their company. And so they get 15% of the shares. Yeah, they may not be doing anything with that company. They're treating it as an investment. But because it's more than 10% on that initial investment, then you've got a 5471 requirement. And that's that's not an uncommon situation as well. And so when you have to file a 5471 because it is a CFC, does then a look-through approach apply? So for example, let's say the company made a million dollars of profit, but no dividends were paid out. Would you then be taxed 
on your share of the $1 million of profit or would you only be taxed when the dividends come out when you have to file a 5471? The 5471 filing is, is present. And then you have a different question of what kind of taxation is taking place on the income that uh, the profits that might be undistributed. And that is a very complicated question uh, that gets answered and it has to be looked at each and every year to understand what's going on. The, there's a U.S. concept which came into being starting in year 2018. There's a concept called GILTI, G-I-L-T-I, which stands for Global Intangible Low Tax Income. And this is a situation where if you do have a CFC and the tax rate on that income in the local jurisdiction falls below a certain percentage, and I'll go through that in a second, then there is a deemed tax to be paid in the U.S. for basically unrepatriated profits. Now, this was a concept that came into being because, and you would have read, maybe read about this on a global basis, where U.S. headquartered companies would park their profits in low-tax jurisdictions around the world, And then would, because they never repatriated the income back to the U.S., were delaying the U.S. tax on that income indefinitely. And so this concept came into being in 2018, basically to try and create additional tax revenue on, those types of, on that type of situation. Unfortunately, what has happened is that you have the classic situation of just somebody creating a company and... Australia, who happens to be a U.S. citizen, who's been caught by this particular new legislation. And so you do have this outcome where you can end up having to pay tax on undistributed profits, albeit at a much lower rate, but you end up with timing differences where obviously the U.S. is, you're paying a tax in the U.S. and you haven't paid any tax at the individual level in Australia at that point. But Australia is not a low-tax jurisdiction. Our corporate income tax is higher than yours. You know, ours is 25% most likely for a small business, otherwise 30%, whereas in the US, the federal corporate income tax is 21%. So we wouldn't be low-tax, but it still applies? Correct. And the good, that's the good news that's come out of that, and this only became good news a little over a year ago, when the U.S. finalized the regulations on how guilty was going to be imposed. And therefore, you would be correct now that you would end up in a situation where because the Australian corporate rate, which can either be you know, down to 27.5 or up to 30%, is certainly going to be higher than it's what it is, is 85% of the U.S. corporate rate of 21% certainly going to be higher. And so in a, a lot of situations, you will have a lot of paperwork for guilty, but not an actual outcome for tax. Now, having said that, though, there are situations where that's still not going to be the case. And the reason for that is because guilty is looked at annually. It's looked at year by year. And so your, your situation that could occur that would generate a different answer would be if you have, let's say, a startup company that for the first few years is not profitable in Australia. It builds up the losses 
for Australian purposes. And then finally, in year, let's say, four or five, it finally turns a profit. For Australian tax purposes, however, you've got built up losses. And so you might not have to pay any Australian corporate income tax. I see. And the U.S. doesn't recognize the losses? Not for the purposes of guilty. Now, there are other mechanisms. There are other mechanisms that can be used. There are elections that can be made to try and mitigate that outcome. And I just had uh, something like that with one of my clients who had losses for three or four years running, had a profit in, in this year. We were able to to make some elections on his U.S. return in order to ensure that he ended up with no U.S. income tax on that profit. But it becomes immensely more complicated to go down that road. And for others, it's still going to end up being the answer that they may end up having some of this tax to pay. It's not usually high as far as percentages, but obviously any tax that you have to pay when you haven't had a corresponding individual income tax in Australia, it can be quite troublesome because you may end up with a double tax situation if you don't have enough Australian tax to offset uh, that tax in the US. Would you get a FITO when you have to pay tax under guilty? The reason why this can be problematic is because the way that the US because of timing differences. tax credit, well, it's a timing difference. And so the Australian tax on this may not occur for years later. And so you may have a, a difficulty matching that up. The way that the foreign tax credit works in the U.S., in this particular case, there's, it's not a carry forward FITO because the U.S. tax is being generated first. Do you know if Australian FITOs can be carried forward? Are you meaning if you have U.S. tax on something and then claiming it in the Australian return? Let's say you have to pay $10,000 under guilty. But in Australia, you don't pay tax until five years later because you still have all these tax losses carry forward. Can you then claim a FITO for the $10,000 in guilty tax you paid five years ago? For Australian purposes, yes. you know, the, the FITO rules you know, do not specifically have a, a time limit on the, in the sense that if the Australian tax is generated four or five years later, than the, the foreign tax. As long as that foreign tax has been paid, you can claim it in the year that you incur the Australian tax. So if I have to pay $10,000 under guilty now, and I don't pay tax in Australia until five years later due to tax loss carry forwards, then I can still claim a FITO for those $10,000 I'm paying now, but I can claim it in, in five years when I do start paying Australian tax. Is that what you're saying? But I think the issue there would not necessarily be based on the timing, but the question would be, would the U.S. tax be eligible as an income tax to be claimed anyway, because where the only reason this tax is being imposed is because of the citizenship of the individual. And you might, you know, check on this to be sure, but my impression of the FITO rules says that that type of tax is ineligible to be claimed as a FITO. So that means you run a risk that any tax you pay under guilty doesn't give you any FITO in Australia. Correct. And therefore, it's usually the situation, and if you take a step back and look at this holistically and say, if we have an Australian PTY limited company located here in Australia and the individuals located here in Australia, which country should be giving a reduction in its tax because of the tax of the other country? 
the country that should be giving the reduction or the credit or the offset should be the U.S., not Australia. And with that argument, you might be able to get out of guilty. And that's where it gets complicated to ensure that the timing has worked out correctly, which oftentimes it might have a difficulty doing. And that's why instead of relying on that timing, we try and do everything we can to ensure that there's that the initial tax for U.S. purposes is not taking place. Because otherwise you might see people, you might see individuals who are forced to pay out their dividends at a time when they weren't prepared to do so. So that they have income in Australia and hence don't and get tax in Australia to be able to offset against the U.S. tax. So is the lesson of the day then that if you're a U.S. citizen, then don't create a company that generates losses, maybe operate as a sole trader while you're in lost territory and then roll over when you start making profits? Is that a possible? I'm loath to, to generalize to that extent, uh, Heidi. It's um, because there can be, you know, you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face. Um, if there may be good reasons to have a PTY limited from the very beginning, which have nothing to do with the tax, tax topics that we're talking right now. It's simply one where, you know, the, the best type of planning for this for the for these questions are before you actually take this the the um before you take the steps to form whatever entity you're going to form have the conversations to say okay what are the pros and cons of each approach guilty yes. is certainly a con of a pty limited but is that enough of a con to outweigh any potential pros, that has to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. So basically, if you start a company that is incurring losses in the first few years, then make sure you have a good US tax agent who can get you out of guilty. And Australian as well, because you want to be able to go through the different entity types and what, why some of those types work and why some of those types don't for, for each individual situation. The U.S. angle of that is one of the impacts for sure. But I would never sit there and say in all situations that a PTY limited is not the right answer because it may very well be the right answer for some people. Yes. It just means you, you definitely want to understand and account for the U.S. impact as part of the decision-making process. So coming back to the 5471, an Australian company would only ever go to a 5471 and then feed into a 1040, but it would never have a separate filing obligation. I think the best way I can answer that question for this purpose, Heidi, is if you have the situation that we're referring to here where you have a U.S. citizen living in Australia, owning, you know, the shares of the company and the CFC as a CF and makes that company a CFC. But that is the, the sole connection that the company has to the U.S. is because of the U.S. citizen shareholder. That should not result in a U.S. corporate income tax return being required. There are plenty of other reasons or other scenarios where a U.S. corporate return could be required, depending on if there are other investors in the U.S., for instance, and or the individual moves back to the U.S. potentially, if there are investments going on in the U.S., if you, create, if you have operations taking place in the U.S., permanent establishments, all of these possibilities. And I'm not going to try and go through all of those for this, for this call right now, but certainly in the very simple standard uh, scenario that we're discussing, I would not see any U.S. corporate return requirement.
Yes, but it's a very good point. If you have operations in the US or you have other investors based in the US or a PE in the US, then yes, of course, it would trigger a corporate income tax. Yes. So never say never. You're right. Question. Corporate trustees, are they of any interest to the US tax return? When you have a discretionary trust and then you have a corporate trustee who, who doesn't do anything else apart from being a trustee. Yeah, and this is a very common situation, of course, where you have a lot of, as you say, either discretionary trusts or sometimes uh, self-managed super funds that are uh, treated the same way. The corporate trustee, which has, in essence, no ownership of any of the assets, is not acting as a company in the sense of uh, any profits and losses. It's simply there. In that situation, there is there are definitively two schools of thought about whether you need to file a 5471 um, for that type of entity. I tend to favor a more conservative school of thought that says, yes, do the 5471. It's what we would call a dormant company and a dormant 5471. It's a simple one to two page filing. There's very little actual information that has to flow into that form 5471. And therefore, my theory is, if in doubt, let's file it um, and go from there. There is another school of thought that says, because this corporate trustee is not in any way, shape, or form acting as a company, then there's no Form 5471 required. And yeah, there's no definitive answer you know, one way or the other on this. So it depends who you get preparing your return. And then what about the trust? So for the copper trustee, we just prepare a, a dormant 5471 that is just a simple two pages. But what about the trust itself? I mean, that's a whole other, whole other very uh, long and expensive topic. But yes, you know, when you're looking at the trust, you then have to look at the type of trust it is and to understand what the U.S. filing requirements would be, whether you're looking at a grantor trust, which I know we've spoken about in the past whether you're even looking at something which for U.S. purposes is acting as a trust. And there's often situations where you have a discretionary unit trust in Australia that is actually acting more like a company than a trust from a U.S. definitional point of view. And therefore, it might be a 5471 instead of a, a foreign trust for that purpose. Yes. It's a long topic. If you boil it down to one simple answer is you do have to look at that entity separate to the corporate trustee. The um, trust, if it's not acting like a company, so it doesn't trigger a 5471, but it acts as a trust, then there would be a different form that then also feeds into the 1040. So the Australian trust wouldn't have to lodge US trust tax return or whatever it is itself, but it would just be a form that then feeds into the 1040, correct? That's correct. So you have a situation where if you have the classic one would be a grantor trust, you have a family trust would be an excellent example of this, where it's a discretionary trust. Uh, definitively looked at as a trust as opposed to any other type of entity. And if the American citizen is considered to be the grantor of that family trust, then there are forms that have to be filed every year in the U.S. to represent what's going on in that trust. And again, you're looking at the, the P&L, the profit and loss with going on within the trust, the portion of it that, that's attributable to the U.S. citizen, 
and the balance sheet information. You know, what is this? What does that family trust hold uh, during the year? All of this information would need to be uh, included in U.S. filing. It's not specifically a separate filing in the sense of a, a, a complete U.S. trust return, but there are separate forms that have to be filed from the U.S. 1040. And that's where this differs slightly from the 5471 because the 5471 is filed with the 1040, whereas the foreign trust forms are filed separately from the 1040. And you have spoken about grantor trust and foreign trust forms, etc. So the U.S. does know the term trust. It, it very often is said that the U.S. doesn't understand trust, but you clearly have trusts. For sure. There very much there are trusts and there are trusts in the U.S. as well. It's simply the fact that the, the reason why I think people come up with the theory that the U.S. doesn't understand the form trust is because of the some types of unit trusts that act as discretionary trust for Australian purposes, but the U.S. would look at that and say, that's really a company. And that causes frustration for Australians who are used to those being regarded as trusts. But that's only one example. And there are certainly other examples, as I've just mentioned, the family trust, self-managed super funds in most circumstances, where it's clearly a trust and is treated as a trust by the U.S. as well. I think I already know the answer to the next question, and that is, you don't get any foreign tax credits for company tax paid in Australia, correct? Yeah, so if you're looking at the franking credits in Australia, the US, for an individual perspective, really ignores the franking credit, but it ignores it for all purposes. And so it's worth maybe going through a little simple numerical example to understand how this plays. So in Australia, let's say you have a shareholder and the shareholder in an investment and that investment pays the shareholder a $100 dividend and that's a frank dividend. And so what the shareholder has received in their hands, assuming the company is a large enough company, they've paid 30% Australian corporate tax then the individual shareholder has received $70 in their hands and there's a $30 franking credit. Now, obviously for Australian purposes, $100 is treated as taxable income, but $30 is treated as a credit on the individual's return. And there may or may not be a top-up tax on that 100, depending on the income level of the individual. For US purposes, when you look at the income that's uh, declared in that individual's U.S. income tax return, it will not be $100. It will be $70. And leaving aside currency changes, it'll be $70 that appears in the U.S. return. The only foreign tax credit that would appear would be as if there's any top-up tax. Yeah, withholding tax. Or it wouldn't necessarily have to be withholding. If you have someone who's a resident of Australia, it's not going to necessarily be withholding. You know, you have that $100 that's in the Australian return. And let's say the $100 is, you know, the individual is earning enough money where they're being taxed at the top marginal rate in Australia. So you, with, with Medicare would be 47%. So you've got 17% top-up tax. 
Yes, you're right. Of course, because the US citizen is a resident of Australia, there wouldn't be any withholding tax. You're right. So put withholding tax aside, that is not relevant. So then to get from 30% to 47%, although 47% includes Medicare, you don't get a foreign tax credit for Medicare. So we're looking at a top up of 15% to get- No, we do. We do get them, but we certainly get a a foreign tax credit for the Medicare tax. Oh, really? Uh, Because it's a tax. This is a this is this is definitely a tax. It, is a, it meets the definition in the U.S. of an income tax, and so certainly able to get the the foreign tax credit. Whether ah, there's that's a nice whether surprise. that can that's actually good. be whether that can actually be claimed in terms of the fact that you know you're already looking at a situation where it almost you only can claim a credit for the amount of Australian tax that is up to the amount of the U.S. income tax. Just the regular Australian income tax at 45%, in that case, a 15% top-up might meet the U.S. income tax on that. And so you may not actually end up using the 2% Medicare levy anyway. So in our example, we have our $100 dividend. $70 has showed up as income in the U.S. tax return. Now, in the U.S., when you have dividends from Australian companies, Generally speaking, the U.S. would treat that dividend as what's called qualified. A qualified dividend in the U.S. gets taxed in the same fashion as a long-term capital gain in the U.S., which means there's a top rate, a flat rate, that gets imposed on that dividend. For a lot of people, that flat rate will be 15%. And that's the case until you get to much higher income levels. Oh, really? So... The dividends of Australian companies count as qualifying dividends. Correct. Ah, because Australia is a, is a country that has negotiated and has an existing double tax agreement with the US. And that fits into the category of qualifying under the rules of qualified dividends. If it was a Hong Kong company, it would not be a qualifying dividend. But because it's Australia, it is. So that means our U.S. citizen only pays 15% of U.S. tax on the $70 he receives. That's right. And so, you know, you're looking at, in that case, of about $10.50, $10.50 for tax on that particular dividend. And then you look at the Australian tax, the top-up tax, and say, well, the top-up tax is $17 Aussie, higher than the U.S., uh, tax and so you end up wiping out the U.S. tax anyway, okay. even though you haven't accounted for the franking credit. Zero U.S. tax to pay because you had enough Australian top-up tax to cover the ten dollar fifty in the U.S. What happens with the remaining six dollar fifty? Carries are they, forward. They are carried forward. Carries forward for up to ten years. I'm not sure we are carrying forward FITOs like that. No, I don't think we do. No, Australia that. used to long, long time ago, probably about twenty years ago, actually. Australia used to carry forward foreign tax credits, but um, I, you're you're testing me to think of what year that changed. But it definitively is not the case any longer. So, if you had the example the other way around, of course, you know the numbers would all be completely different. But if you had the case the other way around, then the um, six dollar fifty would not be carried forward, but would be lost. Correct. And the question here becomes, it's nice that the $6.50 is carried forward for up to 10 years. It may still never get used. Exactly. It only gets used if you then move into a low-tax country where you have 
very little local tax and then you can use all that you have. So you basically have to move to Hong Kong or Singapore after you've been to Australia and you have to do that within 10 years. It would, In essence, it would have to be if there was any situation where it, for some reason the U.S. tax on investment income for a particular year would be greater than the non-U.S. And I say that deliberately because, as you say, it might not be Australia. The non-U.S. tax on that income would be lower than the U.S. tax. And so that's where you could end up in a situation of claiming those carry-forward credits and reducing the U.S. tax in the future year. If we're looking at everything today, that's the hard part of going through this is it's really tough to stop at a particular point because there's going to be plenty of detail that's needed in order to get to any one particular individual circumstances. But I think at a high level, I think we've covered what we need to. Welcome back. So it all depends on whether you have control or not. If you have control and hold either directly or indirectly more than 50%, then you attach form 5471 to your 1040 and the income is usually attributed to you on an accrual basis. And watch out for guilty, global, intangible, low-taxed income. But if you don't control the Australian company, then you probably just pick up dividends on a cash basis in your 1040. And you also heard the long list of scenarios from SAS that would trigger a filing obligation for your Australian company in the US. In the next episode, next Monday, episode 320, Clint Harding of Arnold Block Liebling in Sydney We'll talk about inbound investments. What happens to your Australian tax position when you receive an investment from overseas, be it debt or equity? That is the question for next Monday. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.